Okay, so this is our last session for this class before we take a break. And in the new year, we're going to be getting into discipleship. So that's going to be a fun course seminar. We're going to do a course seminar on discipleship. So this is the last one. But before we jump into Daniel and the lion's den, I just want to review a few core ideas with you and remind you where we came from, okay? So when the New Testament, both Jesus and Paul refer to how the Old Testament points to Jesus, they specifically focus on his death, burial, and resurrection. That is the high point of Jesus' ministry. Everything Jesus himself did builds to his death, burial, and resurrection or flows from it, and it's actually the core of the gospel message. So it makes sense that the Old Testament would point to this climax of all redemptive history over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So I just want to read to you two texts that you know by heart at this point, but just see how in both of these, death, burial, and resurrection is so explicit and specific. Luke 22, 44 through 46. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. You see it, right? Death, burial, resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. By the way, what scriptures would he be talking about there? Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus, Paul, both of them highlight death, burial, resurrection. This is the climax. Everything is either flowing into it or flowing from it. And so it makes sense that this would be the focus of the Old Testament scriptures. So as we've seen, the pattern of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is actually woven through all of the Old Testament. And we don't even literally need a death in the story, in the Old Testament story, for it to point us to Jesus' actual death. The New Testament, in the case of Isaac and Jonah, for instance, tells us that even a resurrection is pictured, even though there was no physical death of both Jonah and Isaac. But the New Testament says death was pictured, resurrection was pictured, so you don't even need an actual death for the death of Jesus to be pictured. Everybody following me? All right. Rock and roll. I got coffee. I hope you do too. So um, I say that to say we are not imposing on the Old Testament something that is not there, but merely seeing with New Testament lenses what is already there. The patterns revealed in the Old Testament itself are intended by God with later revelation from the perspective of the new We can see the old with clarity. Here's an Augustine quote. The old is the new revealed. The new is the old concealed. I think about it like an illustration. If you are walking around in a room in the dark, you see certain things. You don't see everything. You turn on the lights. You see with much more clarity. The room didn't change. The room was the same. The clarity and light that was shed upon the room did change. 
that's thinking about the Old Testament with New Testament lenses on. The light has been switched on. And so now we see with clarity the things that we didn't see with clarity beforehand. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, I also want to tell you, uh, let's see here. I also want to tell you that not every Old Testament text shows us Jesus in the same way. Sometimes there are straightforward predictions. Can somebody think of a straightforward prediction about Jesus? It's Christmas, so this should be a gimme. You don't have to give me the exact text, but just throw out one. An Old Testament prediction about Jesus. For unto us a child is born. Okay, so you have straight up predictions. Good. Sometimes you have promises that Jesus directly fulfills, like the covenant to Abraham and David. Okay, Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. Or a proclamation by action demonstrating Jesus, like the weak shaming the strong in David's defeat of Goliath. Or like a picture of the tomb and resurrection, like Jonah and the whale. Or a pointing to a greater salvation through judgment, like Noah and the flood. Or a prequel of what Jesus does in an even greater way like David defeating the seed of the serpent in Goliath. So do you see how there's just multiple ways in which you get to Jesus? Not every Old Testament text is going to picture him or foreshadow him in the same way. Make sense? Okay. Um, I also want to tell you that not every Old Testament story highlights the same aspect of Jesus' work. Okay? So in Noah and the Flood... You have a picture of salvation through judgment, okay? That's an aspect of Jesus' work that is being focused on in the Noah's, in Noah's flood. There's salvation through judgment. Um, in David and Goliath, you have the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent. That's how you have that picture moving forward towards Jesus. That's the aspect that's being highlighted, in Abraham and Isaac, you have the son's substitutionary sacrifice and Abraham's offspring. In Jonah and the whale, you have supreme salvation through one greater than Jonah. And then in Daniel and in the lion's den, which we'll get to in a minute, shutting mouths brings vindication. All right. So, you know... You know the plan at this point. We're going to cover some blind readings, some fuzzy readings, and then 2020 readings of a text in Daniel. Now, here's what I'm just going to give you a heads up ahead of time. On these blind readings, be thinking, okay, why is this, why does this not cut the mustard on the blind reading? I want you to be thinking about that, okay? Because I'm going to ask you. Get your coffee. All right, it's possible to read the story of Daniel in the lion's den and completely miss Jesus. If you want to, and I encourage you to, open up to Daniel chapter 6. Let me read Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was with him. 
was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a group for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. Well, isn't that just convenient? Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to him, Now, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of the day, The king arose and he went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the mouth of the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. 
King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Boy, doesn't that just sound awesome. And I hope you're already thinking. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyprus the Persian. All right. Okay, so we got a couple of blind readings here. We got blind readings, readings that are just way off. Uh, we got fuzzy readings that are just fuzzy. And then we've got 2020 readings that see Jesus clearly. It is possible to read the story and completely miss Jesus. Now remember, I'm going to ask you, what's wrong with the blind reading? Give me, you know, give me something, all right? So here's the first blind reading, the power of prayer. Here's the approach to this one. We read the story of Daniel in the lion's den, focusing on what got Daniel into trouble, namely his prayer life. The jealous officials couldn't find any fault in Daniel, so they targeted his faithfulness to God, 6, 4, and 5, talked to the king, and talked the king into establishing a law outlawing prayer to anyone but the king for 30 days. Daniel continued to pray three times a day, including in front of the windows of his upper chamber in the house. Prayer was so important to Daniel that he couldn't even stop praying three times a day, let alone for 30 whole days. Moral of the story, we need to have such a dedicated prayer life. Okay? Now, what's... What's the problem with that reading? No connection to Christ whatsoever. Why is that a problem? Let's just go back to principles. Why is that a problem? Focuses on us instead of God, okay? But why is it a problem that there's no Jesus in there. Let's just go back to the, the, princi- the first, the hermeneutical principles, the Bible study principles. Maybe Jesus isn't in there. Okay, all of Scripture is about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection somehow. It doesn't mean we're looking for Jesus under every rock, but it does mean that, that something pointing us there, foreshadowing, ex- expectation, leading, something. It's, it's moving towards Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So it is a problem if there's no if there's no Jesus about this at all. Any other problems you see with this reading? Wes? Well, I think it kind of misses the emphasis of the passage itself. It, I think the, the emphasis is largely on Daniel being saved from the lions. That's kind of the big shebang. And so focusing on prayer aspect of it is a is a misinterpretation. Yeah, it's not even really where the text gives the most uh, spills the most ink. That's a, that's a good Bible study principle you should be thinking about. You, you need to you need to be gearing your interpretations towards. I mean, whatever the tech, whatever the author gives the most space to, communicates something important. You need to be thinking about that. Okay, okay, those are good. Let's let's move on. Um, power of the people. Here is another misreading. We live in an increasingly hostile time where pressure against Christian beliefs even comes from our government. This reading of the story of Daniel in the lion's den is a story of civil disobedience. We saw Daniel's three friends stand up against King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in chapter 3. 
Now we see the same stand up against an unjust law targeting God's people being rejected by Daniel towards King Darius of Media Persia. Just like the apostles in the early church, Acts 4.19, it is better to disobey man and obey God. So when Christians are facing persecution, civil disobedience is warranted, even mandated. The secular rulers have taken upon themselves unjust power, so the moral of the story is we have to fight to return power to the people and stand up against tyrannical rule that is hostile to our faith. What is the problem with that reading? If we come away from Daniel 6 and we say, ah, this is the point. Overthrown. Yeah, interestingly, Daniel, so think about this. By the way, if, if, you, if you hear me describing that and you're like, I kind of like that reading. Just, okay, beware, okay? <laughs> beware. Uh, <laughs> uh, Daniel never protested the injustice of this law. He never started a petition. He never rallied others to take up his cause. He just continued in faithfulness, quiet faithfulness, and he just accepted the consequences of what came upon him. Let's be let's be really clear. Um, yeah, he was actually quite respectful to Darius. Yeah. Any other problems you see with this reading? Yeah. Now, I do want to say there are, there are like second or third level implications or applications for prayer about us in this text. We, it's not totally illegitimate to grab some things about prayer from this text. It's not totally illegitimate to grab some things about civil disobedience from this text either. It's not totally illegitimate, okay? Um, I mean, again, when looking for examples of Christians practicing appropriate civil disobedience, Daniel would be a great example. He he didn't cause a riot. He just continued to act in faithfulness to his God. And he did disobey the king's command. So that's true, okay? But so it also doesn't mean there's no place to fight injustice with legal means. But uh, that's not the point of this passage, okay? Highlighting this theme as the main point of the passage or with the first one, this is about prayer, Highlighting that as the main theme of the passage obscures our vision of Jesus Christ in the passage and the clear picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? So, all right, next one. Yeah. Okay. I guess my, in general, my question would be, uh, so you're saying that the blind readings might be a appropriate points to draw if you're doing a topical sermon on one of those, but if you were just going through this, it would not be an appropriate approach? Even if you were doing a topical sermon, I would want, I mean, I wouldn't want to do a topical sermon on the power of prayer without actually bringing out that 
power of prayer is not the main point of this text. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't do a topical sermon on the power of prayer out of this text. If I was going to do a topical sermon about the power of prayer, I would just do probably a biblical theology of prayer. Or I would take a text that is actually about prayer, our Lord teaching us how to pray, and I would, I would preach through that text. Or I would take one of Paul's prayers and exegete Paul's prayers, uh, and I would do that. I probably wouldn't take a text... Because anytime you do an expositional sermon, it, it's just a foul to make the text. If the text is about X, Y, or Z, your sermon needs to be about X, Y, or Z. And if you make it about A, B, or C, you've kind of run a foul. And I'm not doing a service to God's people. If I show you a text and say, here's what I want to talk about about this, even though it's not the main point. <laughs> Does that make sense? And you too, in your personal Bible reading... It's totally fine to think about principles of prayer, but don't miss the forest for the trees, right? Don't miss the forest for the trees. And the, and the forest is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. How is this pictured here somehow? How is this moving me here? Okay, the power of the lions. Uh, here's the third blind reading. Uh, similar to the whale in the story of Jonah, which I got a kick of that when you covered all those questions about the whale, brother. Um, There is a lot of interest and also speculation around the lions in this den. How many lions were there? Where did the lions come from? Were the lions even native to this area during the Persian Empire? Or were they imported from Africa? How big were these lions? You know, you just have all of these like, you know, curious minds want to know. Brad would probably be asking those questions. And I would say, I don't know, Brad. Uh, How many times does Brad ask me questions and I say, I don't know, Brad? It happens a lot. All right. Lions are the top of the food chain and the king of beasts. It must have been a truly terrible punishment for Daniel or anyone else to face. What is... I'm sorry, brother. It was just... Ah, yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the bus. Um, So what is the problem with this reading? Oh, my goodness, Time is going so fast. You got to give me problems. Come on now. Running out of time, people. It's not about anything that's in the text. That's probably just a good analysis right there. It's just like, that's kind of like a, you know, in heaven will we find out why God made mosquitoes? You know, it's just, I don't know. That's just not what this is about. Um, so, all right, let's go to fuzzy readings. Uh, fuzzy readings. Now, in both of these fuzzy readings that I'm going to talk to you about, um, they aren't totally wrong. They're just incomplete. Okay? So, because there's, there's truth in these fuzzy readings that I'm going to cover. But, but to see them as, uh, but to not see them as incomplete would be bad. You just need to see these are incomplete. All right, so here's one, uh, a fuzzy reading. This is about being falsely accused. Okay? Daniel was the target of malicious and false accusers. He rose to power and prominence in the kingdom, but the other officials were jealous of Daniel, so they plotted against him to bring him down, even kill him. These accusers even knew they didn't have a legitimate charge against him, so they manipulated the king and the law to serve their devious purposes. They were successful in getting Daniel a gruesome death sentence and being thrown into the pit of the lions. It was a legal execution of death, but it was understood by all to be a miscarriage of justice and not moral. Savvy? Similarly, 
Jesus was also plotted against by those who were jealous of his growing popularity. Many false witnesses sought to bring charges against Jesus to secure his death, but they couldn't find any because he was blameless. Jesus was sentenced to death, but Pilate even knew he was innocent, yet proved powerless to stop the cunning plot of his accusers. So, that's this reading, and there's actually a lot to commend to this reading. Actually, if you see it as part of where the story is going, building to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but if you only see this again as a story about, ah, this is about being falsely accused, and Jesus was falsely accused, then you haven't quite, it's like you stopped at the appetizer uh, right before the main course was about to be served. And you were like, what a great appetizer. And I'm like, dude, the steak was about to come out. You need to eat the steak, right? Um, and if you're a vegetarian, then I'm sorry. So uh, so that is a fuzzy reading. Uh, it's just incomplete. It's not bad, but it's incomplete, okay? Now, here is another fuzzy reading. Uh, the faithful Israelite. We have to remember the setting of the story, okay? The whole book of Daniel takes place during the exile, God's people are not living on their own land, they're not living under their own king, and within the bounds of their own covenant laws that God had given them. They are living among hostile rulers in a foreign land that does not acknowledge the true and living God. Despite this hostile setting during the exile, Daniel was a faithful Israelite who served as an example to all of God's people to follow. Daniel 6.4 says that Daniel was faithful and no error was found in him. Regardless of the consequences, God's people could look to Daniel and his example and find hope and encouragement to follow his faithfulness. In a similar way, Jesus lived among a sinful people and proved faithful despite the many temptations to sin. Jesus was the ultimate example of faithfulness, and we should follow his example of faithfulness despite the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in amidst this increasingly hostile world. Again, I would, say, I would want to say the same thing as I did for the past one. This is, not, this is not bad. It's just incomplete. It's moving in the right direction. It's just incomplete. We need to keep going, okay? And for time's sake, we are going to keep going. So let's move to 2020 readings of this story, okay? 2020 readings of this story. This story is centrally about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, first of all, I just want you to notice something about the structure of Daniel. Uh, there is an obvious literary connection between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6, and almost all interpreters acknowledge the chiasm in the structure of the book of Daniel, which has Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 as parallel accounts. Anybody know what a chiasm is? Anybody other than Josh? Jimmy? One, two, three, and then there need to be three, two, one, right? It's where you have a beginning and an ending that kind of match, and a middle and a, like a, and a middle point, and then a middle point before the end that kind of match, and then these two points kind of match. That's a chiasm, okay? And it's a literary device that authors use to communicate significance and meaning. And as a thoughtful student of the Bible, you should read in view of a chiasm. Now, as with everything, you can overdo this. People will be like, the whole Bible's a chiasm, and I found the center, and it's this verse. Don't do that, okay? Um, but chiasms are legit. 
Okay, they're there. And uh, uh, interpreters and scholars see chi- chiasm in, uh, in Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 6 match. Okay, 3 is about Daniel's three friends. And then 6 is about Daniel himself. Daniel 3 takes place under Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 6 takes place under Medo-Persian King Darius. Daniel 3 is the command not to bow down to the king as God. Daniel 6 is the command to pray to the king as God. Daniel 3, the death sentence is the fiery furnace. Daniel 6 is the lion's den. Daniel 3 and 6, they are all saved through the judgment ordeal without harm. And then Daniel 3 and 6, the king makes a proclamation acknowledging the true God as the only one who can do such miraculous rescues. Everybody see that? Now, Daniel 6. The lion's den was meant to be the gravesite for Daniel. The tomb is even sealed after Daniel is placed in there. That's where his bones were to remain after the lions tore off the flesh of him. But God miraculously delivered him. Quote, Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel 6 verse 23. Just as Daniel came up out of the tomb of the lion's den, so too Jesus came up out of his tomb. Whereas Daniel had a near-death experience, just like Isaac and Jonah and Daniel's three friends, Jesus actually did die and literally rose from the dead. So remember, in the Old Testament, you don't have to have an actual death to picture Jesus' death. Got it? This is a picture of death here, right? Just like Jonah and Isaac tells us that there was a picture of death and a picture of resurrection. You have the same thing here. It's a picture of death and a picture of resurrection. This is where we see the death, burial, and resurrection motif in Daniel's story. And I think we have explicit New Testament warrant for this. Consider Hebrews eleven thirty-two through forty. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of, for me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. By the way, keep, keep listening here because we're going to tease out some stuff for ourselves. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, and skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So this passage in Hebrews 11 references the story of Daniel and the lion's den, among many others, and saying how all of these stories point to the resurrection. So verse 35 speaks of women receiving back their dead by resurrection, and also those who died rising again to a better life. 
Verse 39 and 40 says that all of these Old Testament heroes of the faith did not receive what was ultimately promised because whatever temporary or short-term deliverance they experienced, God has provided something better for all of us. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, it is clear that he's talking about the better salvation that Jesus offers and what was ultimately promised and what was intended to be pictured is the final resurrection life won by Jesus. Verse 40, all of these saints will not be perfected despite their heroic acts of faith apart from the new covenant work of Christ. The point of this passage is, even if we face torture, suffering, and finally death, true faith holds on to God, knowing that a better resurrection is coming and that the pain and torment of the present world won't last. So we can look back to the example of these faithful Old Testament heroes who have gone before us and see how they entrust themselves to God and everyone trusts everyone who trusts God will receive the promise and the ultimate promise is resurrection itself. Let me make the Christ connection back to Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den pictures the resurrection hope that God's people living in the midst of exile need. Even if they died in the midst of a hostile land, God would raise them up and deliver them just like he did for Daniel and just like he would finally do with Jesus in an even greater way. So you've heard over and over again that Jesus' resurrection is the center of the Christian life, but it's also the center of the whole Bible. And hopefully you can see for yourselves how pervasive it is throughout Scripture and what a difference that makes. So our hope is not that we're going to escape persecution in this life, but even if we do die, we know for sure that God will raise us up again because God pictured resurrection over and over in the Old Testament, like in Daniel. God proved the resurrection of Jesus And he promises resurrection for us too. Think Hebrews. So do you see how Daniel is picturing, again, don't lose the forest for the trees. I I said a lot of things there. Do you see how Daniel is picturing death, burial, resurrection? It's It's picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's also picturing for us, read through the lens of Hebrews, about how even if we die, we die in hope, knowing that we will be raised. Because Jesus underwent death, burial, and resurrection for us, therefore, we will be raised in him. Do you see that? So it's death, burial, and resurrection in Daniel. Do you see that? Okay. Now, this is also about deliverance by shutting mouths. This is actually, like, way super cool, this one. The story of Daniel in the lion's den also demonstrates... Not just that Jesus is innocent and faithful and that the accusers are wrong, but that they will receive justice. Daniel 6 is not just a story of deliverance, but it's also a story of vindication. And this is all part of the end-time resurrection hope that we are waiting for. Now, there is a difference between rescue and vindication. Everybody still with me? There is a difference between rescue and vindication. If you are charged with a crime and you were sentenced to prison, you would legally be stuck there. Now, if somehow you were like John Fick and you could accomplish anything with a screwdriver, okay, 
uh, if somehow you could pull off a prison break, I'm not saying John would escape from prison, you know what I'm saying, but if you could somehow pull off a prison break and you escaped, you would be rescued in a sense, you would be free from the prison in a sense, but you would not be vindicated. You would still be hiding and under the threat of being hunted down and brought back to prison because your name wasn't cleared. Does that make sense? Difference between rescue and vindication. But if somehow the charges were reversed and you were released from prison because your name was cleared, then you would be vindicated. No one could say anything bad about you. No more accusations could come your way because you've been vindicated. What does that have to do with anything? I'm glad you asked. All right. Something similar is happening in Daniel 6 in Jesus' life and with us too. The story in Daniel 6 emphasizes over and over the maliciousness of the false accusers. Do you recall that as we read through it? It emphasized over and over the maliciousness of the false accusers. Daniel is sentenced to death. Everybody knows he's innocent, even the king. But it's not proven until God rescues him from the lion's den and he's raised up from the grave unharmed. Now everybody knows who's in the right and who's in the wrong and true justice is meted out. God delivers Daniel by shutting the mouths of the lions. God first shuts the mouths of the lions and then he shuts the mouths of the accusers and they are thrown into the pit and receive the judgment they wanted to give Daniel. And now that they are dead... There can be no more accusations brought against Daniel. His name is clear, and he is vindicated. And this is going to get even cooler. So you better just get ready. Reversal. The instrument that was supposed to produce the death of Daniel, what was that? The lions. Instead, produces the death of his enemies. Do you see that reversal? Daniel's enemies fall into their own trap. Just as God shut the mouths of the lions and delivered Daniel, now God shuts the mouths of Daniel's enemies too, using their own trap. He crushes them and their families so that no more accusers of Daniel are left. And that shows us the power of the cross. The mechanism by which the enemies of God are destroyed. The symbol of death, the epitome of sin, as the Lord of glory is murdered, becomes the death of death and the ultimate defeat of death. This is unbelievable. Satan enters into Judas, uses him to set a trap that leads to the death of the Son of God. But little does Satan know that his own trap is God's plan for his defeat. And at the cross... Satan falls on his own sword. His seemingly greatest moment of victory is actually his greatest moment of defeat. That is a beautiful picture of the cross that you see in Daniel 6. This reversal. What the enemies of God's people thought would accomplish victory actually vindicates God's man. And it becomes the mechanism through which they are silenced and judged. And so too with the cross. Satan and his minions thought this would be the death 
of the Son of God. Little did he know that it was going to be turned around. Jesus Christ and the promises and the word of God would be vindicated. And he himself would be crushed and ultimately defeated. And all of the enemies of God silenced. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture picture of reversal. And one more, it's a beautiful picture of judgment. I don't know if one little detail about this text troubled you. Those details about the wives and the kids being thrown into the pit, that makes us squirm a little bit. And the lions crushing their bones before they even hit the ground. Why is that there? That may trouble you. What does it mean? Well, in a temporal way, it protected the once falsely accused from having anyone else seek vengeance on him for the death of the false accusers. But in the ultimate sense... I actually just think it pictures a more severe judgment. Ultimately, hell itself. The reason why the whole family is judged is because it's a covenantal judgment. All of those connected to the head of the family receive the same judgment. Just like what happened with the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And if you think about it, think about it like this. All those in Adam with Adam as your covenant head, will receive the judgment of hell. But all of those in Christ, with Christ as your covenant head, will receive eternal life. There are only two options according to Paul in Romans 5. We are either in Adam or in Christ. So these family members were in the the headship of their covenant head, the the head of their family. They were judged underneath that covenant headship. So too, we are either in Adam or in Christ, and we will be judged with the judgment uh, that Adam received, uh, or we will be vindicated based upon our union with Jesus Christ. So, uh, I don't want to cover the last couple of verses Actually, I do, because it's just too good. So I am going to cover it. Um, I'm going to cover Re- Revelation 12, um, because there's a, there's a little snapshot of it in, uh, in Daniel 6. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's a beautiful text. Um, So we actually have a couple of minutes left. I got done and left time for questions, just saying. Uh, So, all right. Does anybody have any questions about Daniel and the lion's den or about any of the other pictures that we've covered in the 30 seconds that we have left for questions? (laughs) I'm kidding. I'll give, I'll give it a little more time than that. But do you have any questions? Well, I'm, oh, Greg, Brad, I think could you sum up for us, BJ? How, as you, as we're reading our new, our Old Testaments, how do we just? What would be your best way of saying? How do I know if I'm seeing something that's there? Or if I'm, if I'm cueing myself to look for Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, how do I know whether I'm going after something that's there, you know, a fish that's actually there, or you know, am I fishing in a hole that doesn't have to fish? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, number one, I would say, be good listeners at church. Uh, because this is why we preach through the... This is why I, sp- I spend... I mean, maybe... I mean, I don't... I, if you'll notice, I preach through a New Testament book, and then I go back to the Old Testament. Because I never want to be far from the Old Testament, because I want to be teaching you how to read your Bibles in such a way as to where you see Christ appropriately. So, if you want to learn a little bit about getting some bearings for how to see Christ appropriately, I might encourage you to go back to our sermon archives and listen to overview sermons that I preached on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Listen to those overview sermons. That's going to give you some groundings and some bearings of the big things that are going on there, literarily and theologically, which then is going to inform you as you read the Bible yourself, okay? So that would be number one. Number two, I would just say, ask a question as you're reading through and saying, does this foreshadow the person of Christ? Does this foreshadow the work of Christ? Does this foreshadow my need for Christ? Does this foreshadow the salvation accomplished by Christ? Does this point me to ask questions like that? Does that make sense? And if you ask questions like that, you won't be too far off. You won't be too far off the mark. Okay. Um, I don't want you to be fearful when you read your Old Testament. I want you to be excited and anticipatory as you read your Old Testament. I would also say you would be really helped by just reading, before you read an Old Testament book, you'd be really helped by reading the introductory material in the ESV Study Bible or in the Reformation Study Bible because they're going to give you some handholds there. And then I would also say that almost all of you, well, all of you have my cell phone number and Brad's cell phone number, and boy, there are, there are calls that I just love receiving, uh, one of which would be like, hey, BJ, reading this in my Bible today and uh, came across this. Just wondering, do you think there's something here or not? Help me think about this. Boy, that would be a fun call to get on a Tuesday morning, right? I'd be happy to take that phone call or a Wednesday night or whenever. Um, So you could call Brad or I and ask your theological itchy questions too. How about that? Other questions, my friends? Okay, next time we're going to cover, well, we have a break next week and the week after. So no core seminar, no foundations next week or the week after. So Christmas, the 25th, we are having service, So, but no core seminars on Christmas Day, no core seminars on New Year's Day, and then we'll pick up with core seminars after that on the 8th of January, and we're going to pick up with a series on discipleship, okay? So let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, help us to see Jesus more and more and more as we read our Bibles and help our hearts to burn within us as we do. For he is the sum and substance of your word and our lives. In his name we pray, amen.